I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. In the middle of your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 49, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. If you're just joining us, we began last week uh, a series in the servant songs of Isaiah, these uh, poems that uh, speak so beautifully, so clearly about our Savior Jesus Christ. This morning we come to the second song, Isaiah chapter 49, reading verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Isaiah writes, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray as we... Ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for the comfort that you give to us in our affliction. Oh, Lord, we come this morning, perhaps with deeply afflicted hearts. Lord, we come in all manner of emotion, all manner of circumstance. But Lord, what we need most of all this morning is to see your son your servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we long to know him better. We long to have a deeper faith in him. We long to have our hope fixed solely upon the grace that will be revealed when he comes again. 
So Lord, would you be pleased, even this morning, by your Holy Spirit, who inspired Isaiah to pen these words, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would grant to us the comfort of the gospel, that the light of the nations would shine yet once again in our hearts, and that we, your people, would be filled with joyful worship, we would be filled with bold and courageous witness, and we thank you, O Lord, for your grace in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. When you think about the birth of Jesus, undoubtedly there are certain figures that loom large in your mind. I'm sure you think of the angel Gabriel announcing the birth of Jesus beforehand. Uh, You remember Joseph and Mary making their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You remember the shepherds to whom the angels appeared uh, the night of his birth. And the Magi who came from the east somewhere between one and two years after Jesus was born. But I hope that you also think about the aged Simeon, that man who in Luke chapter 2 had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, he would not die. The Lord would keep him alive until he saw the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And so Luke tells us in Luke 2 that when Jesus' parents came to Jerusalem, Uh, to present Jesus to the Lord some six weeks after he was born, to to make the purification offerings that had been commanded in the law of Moses, Uh, the Holy Spirit leads Simeon to the temple as well. Simeon comes, and when he sees Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus, he takes Jesus in his arms. I've often wondered, what were Joseph and Mary thinking When this man took their baby, wait, be careful, don't drop him, he's only six weeks old. But we know exactly what they were thinking after they heard Simeon speak. Do you remember what Luke says? They marveled at what he said. And what did he say? He said this, Lord, now you are releasing your servant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So why did Joseph and Mary marvel at what Simeon said? Because they heard Simeon quoting from the second servant song in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. They heard Simeon declaring that the, the baby in his arms fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus was God's salvation for the Jews and for the Gentiles. Jesus was the servant of the Lord. Just like we saw last week in Isaiah 42, ultimately Isaiah 49 is about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the servant of the Lord. He is the one speaking In this passage, he is the one being spoken to and being spoken about. If we took this text and and outlined it, we could break it down into three sections. First, in in verses 1 to 6, Jesus, the servant himself, is speaking. And then in verses 7 to 12, the Lord God is speaking to Jesus, his servant. And then in verse 13, the prophet Isaiah calls on all creation to praise the Lord who through his servant Jesus brings comfort and compassion to his people, both in the nation of Israel and to all the Gentiles. He brings them comfort in the time of their affliction. 
Now, remember the context, the original context in which Isaiah penned these words. Isaiah, you recall, is prophesying into the future over 100 years. He's prophesying to the Israelites who were in exile, who would be in exile in Babylon. They were there, and Isaiah is declaring that God will rescue them from Babylon. You look back in chapter 48, uh, there in verse 20, you hear him say, Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. But as we saw last week, Israel's deeper problem was their sinfulness that had led them into exile. It wasn't just the exile, but it was their sinfulness that had led them into exile. Again, chapter 48, Isaiah has declared in verse 8 the sinfulness of Israel. They, he, he says, you've never heard, you've never known from of old, your ears have not been open. Their ears were not open to pay attention to God's truth or his commands. They dealt treacherously, he says in verse 8, from before birth you were called a rebel. And that's why God sent them to Babylon. You see it there in verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, 48.10, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. They were going through these afflictions in Babylon because of their rebellion against the Lord. But God is going to restore them, says Isaiah, to Israel. One commentator, Alec Motier, reminds us, however, to come home to the land of Israel is not to come home to the Lord God of Israel. As might have been said in those days, you can take a man out of Babylon, but you can't take Babylon out of the man. Right. And so in chapter 49, the servant appears. He appears on the scene once more. He describes himself as the instrument by which God will return all of his people, both Jew and Gentile, back to himself, not merely from physical exile, geographical exile, but from spiritual exile, from the, the, the spiritual slavery that they were in because of their sin. And so this morning, if you are here and you are afflicted by your sin, by the misery that your sin, by, that the sin of others have brought upon you, don't you see these words that speak of Jesus' coming into the world as the servant of the Lord, these words bring comfort and the compassion of God, not just to Israel's, Isaiah's first hearers, but to you this morning as well. And so I want you to see the, the, the way that these words bring us comfort. And they do it by pointing us to Jesus, the servant of the Lord. And they, they show us that Jesus is first the speaking servant, Second, he is the saving servant. And third, he is the suffering servant. Let's think about these three things together and how they bring us the comfort of the Lord. First, Jesus is the speaking servant. Notice how Jesus begins, how the servant in this passage begins by emphasizing his speaking. He says, listen to me. Give attention the servant comes to speak the truth of God's word, both to those who have rejected it, but also to those who have never known it in the first place. In verse 2, he says that God made his mouth like a sharp sword. His mouth, the words, 
are like a sharp sword. We're familiar, aren't we, with the way the Bible uses this imagery. We think of Ephesians 6.17 when Paul calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. Or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 in which we hear that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Here, the servant is highlighting his prophetic work. He is the megaphone of God, the spokesman of God. And of course, here again, we see Jesus so clearly in this text, don't we? If you've ever read the book of Revelation, perhaps you, you have a hint, you have a, 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 a shadow, an echo of, of this text, don't you? When, when the apostle John speaks in chapter 1 and 2 and, and in chapter 19 and says that out of Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword. Last week we remembered how Jesus' glory manifested on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, hearkened back to Isaiah chapter 42 when, when the Lord says, this is my son, my chosen one. But also there on the Mount of Transfiguration, God is, is referring back here to Isaiah 49. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Just as the servant said, listen to me, to my words. Who showed up that day on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, it, it was Moses, the foundational prophet in Israel. It was Elijah, right? the, the first of the great prophets who would call the, the kings of Israel and their rebellion to account Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. He is the servant of the Lord who comes to speak so that we might listen and hear. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, you recall, Moses had prophesied that there would come a prophet greater than him into the world, and, and Israel was to listen to that prophet. Well, Jesus is the prophet of God, the prophet greater than Moses. He came to proclaim God's word of grace God's word of compassion and comfort to those who were dead in their sin and misery. He came to speak so that we might listen to him and be saved. He appeared in this world to be a preacher. Do you remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus has healed people in Peter's hometown and the next morning all the people are there and Peter can't find Jesus and he goes and he looks for him and he says, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. They're here. Where are you? And Jesus says to Peter, let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. Jesus came as the servant of the Lord to be a prophet, to be a preacher, to proclaim the gospel. He came to preach forgiveness to the guilty. He came to preach life to the dead. He came to preach reconciliation to the alienated. He came to preach peace to the troubled and comfort to the sorrowful. Jesus appeared to preach fellowship to the lonely. He came to preach joy to the sign. He is the servant of the Lord who brings the comfort of God. And when we know him, when we trust in him, then we can say with the disciples, with Peter again in John chapter 6, when everyone else was turning away because of the hard things that Jesus was saying, and Jesus looked at his disciples and says, do you want to go away also? And Peter said, Lord, where shall we go? To whom shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the speaking servant, but he's, of course, so much more than a mere prophet. He is himself the word of God. He's not just the subject speaking the word. He is the object 
that is, of, it is spoken. He is the word of God that is proclaimed, the eternal word, the word of life, the truth of God. He is the revelation of the Father as the beloved Son, and he is the word made flesh. Don't we have a hint of that even here in this passage? When it speaks of the servant being called from the womb and it speaks of the body of his mother, there is going to be, says Isaiah, a human figure who will come. And we know that Jesus, the eternal word of God, God has come in the flesh, God incarnate. And he has come to be an effective messenger He has come to speak effectively. Don't you love the imagery here in verse 2? His mouth like a sharp sword. We've all had a knife that wasn't sharp enough, right? It wasn't smooth in its cutting. And what did we have to do? We had to sharpen it, right? So that it actually could do what it was created and designed to do. Jesus is the sharpest of knives, the sharpest of swords. He is the, the most polished of arrows, A polished arrow is one whose shaft has been uh, sanded so smooth that it glides through the air aerodynamically. The the friction of the air, the friction of of the arrow is lessened. It's like a a swimmer who shaves all the hair off his body so he can glide through the water in competition. Jesus is this polished arrow. His word is sharp and effective. Isaiah will tell us when he later in chapter 55 Uh, that God's word will never return to him empty or or void. It will always accomplish that for which he sends it. Jesus is the prophet who always gets his man, his woman, his boy, his girl. What did we read this morning in Acts chapter 13? All the Gentiles appointed for eternal life believed. God's elect, Jesus comes to save them through the preaching of his word. And so the question for us this morning is, is will we listen to Jesus? Will we give attention to him? Or will we be like the way we are walking through the malls and the shopping centers and all the Christmas music in December is going on and and we just sort of tune it out, right? Just to get done what we need to get done there. The more important things. So often, that's the way we are. We've heard these stories of Jesus. We've heard stories about his birth, about his life, We've heard them so often that, that it begins to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. It's just preachers speak and, and, and teachers teach, and, and that's all we hear, right, is, is this sort of mumbling and muttering. We feel like we know everything there is to know, even though we have no clue what he's saying. It's just gibberish to us. We've been living, haven't we, in these last two years, in the days of vaccinations and inoculations and it made me think as I thought of Jesus as the prophet and our responding to him and listening. Isn't it so often that we are like a vaccination, right? We've gotten just enough of the word to be inoculated to it, but not enough of the word to, to catch the virus, so to speak, of the gospel and of true saving faith and true repentance unto life. We just have enough to say, yeah, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I know that. I know what Jesus is going to say to me. I don't need to listen to it again. And so this morning, God is calling us to listen to Jesus, his servant, to listen afresh and anew to him who speaks God's word of comfort and compassion for our salvation. Which brings us to our second point. Not only is Jesus 
a speaking servant. He is a saving servant. Now you may have noticed something strange there in verse 3. Jesus says that God said to him, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But then down in verse 5, we read this. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. And so there's this tension, isn't there? There's this confusion. In the one hand, in verse 3, the servant is identified with Israel. He is Israel. But in verse 5, he is distinguished from Israel. He has a ministry to Israel. What's going on here? Well, I think part of the answer is found in verse 6, in what the Lord God says to the servant. Look there. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, God sends his servant to be a saving servant. He is an individual distinct from the nation of Israel. Why? So that he might restore God's elect, the preserved ones of Israel, the remnant of Israel, back to God himself. God has sent him, though, not only to save the Jews, but to be a salvation for the Gentile nations of the earth. Notice back again in verse 1, who is the servant calling to listen to him? He's saying, listen listen to me, O coastlands, the islands that are afar, give attention, you peoples from afar. You see, Jesus has come to be the salvation not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And what this means is that Jesus has come to be everything Israel was supposed to be as a nation, but never was. Jesus is the ideal Israel. He is the model Israel. He he embodies everything that God had called Israel to do and to be. Going all the way back to Father Abraham, when Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations. When Moses brings the children of Israel there to Mount Sinai, God calls on Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, mediating God's presence and God's salvation to the nations. He is to be, Israel is to be a witness to the Gentiles of what it means to know God and to follow God. And yet, as we see even here in the book of Isaiah, Israel as a nation had defected from this purpose. They had become just like the nations. They had worshipped the nation's gods. They had walked in the nation's ways. If you turn back to Isaiah 42, in verse 18, we read this. Hear you deaf, look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. There, God is not speaking of this figure, the servant of the Lord, of of whom these songs are written, but of Israel, his servant. The one who had turned away from the Lord. But Jesus, as the servant par excellence, he is the one who embodies all that Israel was to be. He is the one, as verse 3 says in 49, in whom God will be glorified. And God was glorified, you see, not just by the servant bringing back the Jews to the Lord, but also by the servant bringing salvation from sin and from misery to every nation in all the earth. You see it there again in verse 6. It's too light a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. The fullness of God's glory is shown through his servant, bringing salvation to the nations. One of the things I enjoy doing to relax is playing chess. I typically play it on the, the chess.com app. If you play chess, or maybe even if you don't, over the past couple of years, you may have heard of a 30-year-old Norwegian named Magnus Carlsen. He has been the chess world champion since 2013 when he was 22, and he continues to, to just destroy everyone who he plays. And it would be like saying to Magnus, hey, Magnus, why don't you play Caleb in chess? He would laugh. He would say, like, that's such a, a trivial light thing. I could do that in my sleep. I could do that blindfolded. And in fact, right, before he became the chess world champion back in 2013, Magnus Carlsen went to Harvard University and he played 10 lawyers at the same time while he was blindfolded and he beat all of them. Right? You, say, you see, it would be a light thing, a trivial thing for Magnus Carlsen to play me in chess. But it's a weighty thing right, to say, okay, now you're going to play 10 people at the same time blindfolded. Now, for him, that was actually a trivial thing as well, right? But you get the point. You get the picture. It's a pale analogy to this comparison that God is making here in verse 6. To save the Jews, well, that's, that's just a small thing. Let's do something great. Let's do something amazing. Let's do something marvelous. And so he sends his servant to be a light to the nations who dwell in darkness. And didn't we already hear Simeon tell Joseph and Mary that that's who Jesus is. He came to bring the word of comforting grace first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, as Paul in Romans has told us. The pattern of Jesus' ministry, the pattern of the apostles, even as we saw in Acts 13, was to bring the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For both Jews and Gentiles, as we see in verses 8 through 12, the Lord Jesus, as the servant, has accomplished a new and a better exodus. What were Moses and Elijah saying and talking about with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration? They were discussing the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. All around the compass point, say verse 12, these shall come from afar, these from the north, these from the west, these from the land of Syene, which is down in southern Egypt. God gave Jesus to be, as it says there in verse 8, a covenant to the people of Israel, but also to gather into one all the elect of God that are scattered abroad. He says to the prisoners, both near and far, come out to those who are in darkness. He says, appear, let the light shine upon you. Through Jesus the servant, as it says in verse 9, we feed along the ways he pastures us on all bare heights. Wherever we go, there is food to eat. He provides for us. He makes it so that we shall neither hunger or thirst, verse 10. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike us. For he who has pity on us will lead us by springs of water. He will guide us. Jesus is the servant of God who brings us out of dark dungeons, who brings us out of our darkness and shines the light of God's truth upon us. Of course, this imagery of darkness is one that, that we, don't, we don't exactly get, do we? Right? We live in the city. We don't know what it's like to, to be out in perhaps the country. And even in the country, there's all the stars you get to see. There's light everywhere we go. Maybe you've been in a cave and the tour guide has said, all right, now I want you to turn your headlights off. And if you've ever done that, you know darkness, right? You know deep darkness. 
When we lived in Tennessee, we were close to the Eastern time zone. And when the clocks fell back in the fall, all of a sudden it started getting dark at around 4, 4.30. Right? And you think this is what it must feel like to live in, in the United Kingdom where it's, it's always dark, evidently. And, and you know, the days are shorter and, and, and it's gloomy and, and rainy and wet. Right? We, we, we know what it feels like, don't we? To be in darkness when the power goes off and to have the power come back on. Right? We know that feeling of exhilaration. Maybe it's last year's ice storm that you still remember. Ah, the power went off and we never knew would it come back on. Right? But you know when it comes on and the, the joy, the thrill. You know, finally you hear the, the microwave beep. You hear the printer in your office whir. You, 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 you know, the lights come back on. Everything that had been on and you forgot to turn off before the power went off. Boom, it's, it's on. It's, it's going. And you're excited, and the kids are excited because they're not afraid anymore. And Jesus is saying, I bring light to your darkness, and the joy, the thrill, the feeling is even better than that. Now, some of you know it. You know what it's like for Jesus to flip the breaker, and everything that was dark in your heart has become light. But for others of you, it wasn't sort of a once-and-done moment Right, of conversion, rather it was more like the sunrise, right? where, where yes, it was dark, and then all of a sudden it was a little lighter and a little lighter, and, and, and then all of a sudden it's day, and you don't really remember when it wasn't day, because you've grown up hearing of the gospel. You've grown up, and your testimony is, is that it's always felt like daytime to you. But no matter what your story of God's grace is, the truth is that God has brought you back from your dark exile and sin and misery he has gathered you into his fold. He has had compassion and comfort you on your affliction and your misery. That affliction, some of it's because of your sin. Others of it is because of the sin of other people in your life. Some of it's just because you live in a fallen world. But Jesus has been a saving servant. And he's done that through his suffering. That's the last thing I want you to see this morning. He's a speaking servant, a saving servant. And he is a suffering servant. Here in this song, Isaiah begins to open up this theme of the servant's suffering, a theme that he'll, he'll go into more detail in, in the third and the fourth songs. You see there in verse 4 uh, the, the, the general suffering that comes from dwelling with a fallen people in a fallen world. He says, But I said I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and for vanity. That word nothing is the Hebrew word tohu. We find it in Genesis chapter 1 describing the emptiness, the, the wasteland that the world was after God had created it, before he formed it and over the, the course of the six days of creation. That second word vanity is the, the word we're familiar with perhaps from the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaninglessness. Sort of just, it's like a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. There, there's, there's nothing of substance. It's effervescent. It's fleeting. Think of Jesus and all the times that his teaching, even to his own disciples, fell on deaf ears. And he had to say to them, do you not understand? Think of Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the demon-possessed boy was there and he declares, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Jesus knew what it was to live with apparent failure. He knew what it was to suffer emotionally, to suffer the frustration of living in a broken world with broken and sinful people. 
He was a suffering servant. But you see in verse 7, don't you, a, a more specific suffering that the servant Jesus endured. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, of tyrants. Jesus knew what it was to be opposed, to be rejected, despised and hated and oppressed. And ultimately, as the servant, the suffering servant, Jesus would suffer unto the point of death on the cross. Because as we'll see more clearly in the weeks to come, his suffering on the cross was the only way ultimately to bring sinners back to God. But don't miss that in the midst of his suffering, he has a confidence and a trust in the Lord. Again, look at verse 4 at the end. I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right, my, my justice, my judgment is with the Lord. He is the one who judges me. Surely my recompense, my reward is with my God. Though his ministry may have seemed at points to him to be a, a waste, he may have been tempted to throw in the towel, and yet he entrusts himself to God who judges rightly. Again, we see at the end of verse 7, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, this is what God says, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Just like Joseph in the book of Genesis, Jesus, the servant, the servant of rulers, he had to suffer first before he entered into his glory. The only way to glory was through suffering and affliction and tribulation. Jesus has become afflicted so that we might know comfort in our affliction. Jesus has become sin for us so that we might be forgiven of all of our sins. Jesus has gone into the darkness of enduring the wrath of God on the cross so that we might have the light of the gospel in the face of Christ proclaimed to our hearts that we might believe on him. Brothers and sisters, does this news, if you know Jesus this morning, does this news move you to worship, even as Isaiah calls the heavens and the earth, the mountains to exalt and to break into singing? It ought to. Jesus is the speaking servant, the saving servant, the suffering servant. Therefore, we rejoice at what he has done. But does it also lead you to, to witness? Not just worship, but witness. What did we read in Acts 13? The reason I wanted Dean to read that passage was not only because it was this beautiful picture of redemptive history, but also because at the very end there, Paul quotes from Isaiah 49 with regard to himself and to Barnabas. As we mentioned last week, we are light in the Lord. We are the light of the world. He is the light of the world, but in him as our head, we are light. We are to bring the gospel to the nations. We are to proclaim to the nations that now is the favorable day of salvation. Now is the time. The gospel has gone forth. Jesus has suffered, but has been raised from the dead. He has been exalted on high, and therefore the nations can know peace and comfort in the midst of their affliction. And therefore we take up our cross. We follow him. We know that we will suffer even as he suffered. And so we go forth in the confidence that comes from, from knowing that Jesus Christ as he cried out to the Father, Hebrews tells us, with loud prayers and, and cries that God would save him from death. 
And he was heard because of his piety. God has raised his son from the dead. He did not give him over to death. And therefore, we go in his strength. We go in his victory, proclaiming to all the nations the light of the gospel. It's only through tribulation and suffering that we will share in the glory that Jesus has accomplished for us. And so we bring it with passion, we bring it with confidence, we bring it with conviction, we bear witness to the nations that Jesus is the only hope, the only light. Does this passage move your hearts to worship and to witness? It ought to. It ought to cause us to desire that more and more of our neighbors who don't know Jesus would put their trust in him, would find light and hope and peace in him and in him alone. And if you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, And hear from Isaiah that there is comfort for you. There is comfort for you in your affliction. And not just your affliction in the sense of the the bad things that are happening to you, but the deepest affliction that you know, your sin, your iniquity, your guilt. Jesus brings peace and comfort to those who put their trust in him. He is the servant who speaks God's truth. He's the servant who saves. He is the servant who is saved through his suffering. May the Lord be pleased to exalt him, to glorify him in our hearts so that we might proclaim him everywhere we go as the light of the nations. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful passage, for the words that remind us of who you are and and of what you have come to do. Jesus, thank you that you are the servant of the Lord that you are the light for the nations. Lord, you have brought light into our hearts. And now we pray that you would use us. May we be your instruments. May we be those that you send forth so that others might come to know you. Lord, we ask that that this beautiful text would spur us on to love and to good deeds. Lord, that it would motivate us to faith, to hope, to love. Oh, Father, come, we pray, by your Spirit, Exalt your Son in our heart. Fill our hearts with worship. Send us out in witness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.